and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you get someone to commit to something? It's an age-old question. One that has sparked endless debate and concern throughout the years. Whether people seem to be preoccupied and unaware of the pressing issues of the day as you might see them, or when they're so unsure about the way things are unfolding that they can't even bring themselves to take a chance. Now, researchers earn good money finding new ways to convince people to get involved, but often mere involvement just isn't enough. Now, I don't recall who it was, but there was someone who came up with an example of the difference between involvement and commitment. This person did it by comparing the key ingredients of a ham and egg breakfast. He concluded that, first of all, the chicken is involved, right? They're surrendering a few eggs to the effort. But then there's the pig. It's committed. The porker's putting it in its all. The chicken is just contributing. Now ponder that the next time you're at eggs and things or IHOP. In our lives, going all in is fraught with danger. Taking that last step to true commitment becomes a high-stress situation because it involves high risk and high rewards. But, you know, you don't commit all of your resources to the mundane things in life. You give your full devotion to your passions, to what matters most to you in your life. Now, as we look at Jesus, we, we realize that Jesus is looking to be what matters most in our lives, isn't he? Jesus is hoping for a commitment. He wants our all. As we look at our gospel for today, we can see how the desire is played out in his time with the apostles. Throughout the early years of his ministry, Jesus had been unveiling himself to his disciples, piece by piece, bit by bit, establishing his identity as the promised Messiah. And they experienced the powerful way that Jesus had drawn multitudes to hear his words. They witnessed him perform increasingly stunning miracles as he had healed leprosy and paralysis, cast out unclean spirits and even commanded nature to obey his will by calming the storm with, bit, with but a word. They'd seen all of that. They'd even seen him raise the dead. And despite this overflowing mountain of evidence, the disciples were still a bit unsure, still not quite understanding who Jesus truly was or what he had come to do. They seemed to be just going along for the ride contributing what they could along the way, but not totally buying in just yet. And as you look at Jesus, you may note a fresh urgency showing up in him after the execution of John the Baptist, his cousin. John was the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the one who had prepared the way for the Messiah. Now he was gone, and Jesus found himself at a very delicate point in his ministry. And 
He really wanted to get away after the terrible news came to him. And he tried to leave the people behind by casting off in a small boat. If you remember from last week, all by himself, he wanted to get away. And he was hoping to find a desolate place far away from anyone. But it didn't work. The crowds he was attracting were growing exponentially more persistent. They followed him along the shore, desperately hoping that Jesus could help them. Here is where his commitment to them got in his own way. He had compassion for them despite his own needs, taking precious time and energy to heal all of those who were sick and then feeding at least 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Now, then the disciples doubted that such a meager supply could do anything for such a multitude, but in the end they collected 12 doggy bags stuffed to the gills with leftovers, one for each of these 12 doubters. Mute evidence of God's compassionate, overflowing provision. Now that's the immediate context for our lesson today. Jesus wraps up that impressive miracle by putting his people out on a small boat and telling them to make for Bethsaida, across the Sea of Galilee, where he would meet up with them to continue his ministry. And as they began rowing out to sea, Jesus dismissed the reluctant crowds back to their homes. Now, convincing all of these needy people to go away had to be difficult. These people were filled with fresh hope through the miraculous meal they had just shared and filled with curiosity about just what sort of a man could do these things. But Jesus somehow manages to convince them that the show is over. There's nothing more to see here. And after he's finally alone, Jesus once again heads into the wilderness where he can't be followed, climbing a local mountain until he finds a place of solitude. There, alone in his exhaustion and need, he prays, communing with his father well into the evening. We are told that by this time, the boat with the apostles on board had made significant headway against the prevailing winds, but far from shore, they were still facing a long night of rowing over a dark, wind-tossed sea. Jesus had some catching up to do. So at some point later in the night, he set off. I would venture to say at this point, things were pretty much business as usual. Jesus often sent Peter, John, and company off as advance men to prepare things for his arrival, or to gather provisions, or, or to minister. Also, Jesus made a habit of seeking opportunities to connect with his Father, to recharge his flagging spirit after giving so much of himself in service to others. There's nothing new here. However, this is the point where things get a bit strange. After rowing most most of the night, the apostles were still wrestling with an unruly sea and an opposing wind, having made little more progress toward their destination. Matthew's narrative at this point strikes me as being rather matter-of-fact, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Wait, walking on the sea? During the fourth watch, that is to say at some time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., out of the gloaming, they apprehend a ghostly image walking toward them in the open sea. They had no idea what this might be, and they were understandably unnerved. 
says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And Jesus, as he always tends to do, wastes no time trying to calm their fears, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Such comforting words there. And in the midst of all this, when, when Peter hears who it is, he finally starts to put the pieces together. He responds, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. See, this is the sort of commitment Jesus had been looking for. And he says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus, it says. It's as if all of the, the parts, all of the clues that, that Peter had seen finally fell into place for him. Faith finally took hold as he mentally worked with all these different images he had. He ticks through the list. You start with, he speaks with authority. Check. He heals. Check. Controls the demonic. Raises the dead. Double check. Commands nature. Check. Walks on water. Now, perhaps at this point, Peter recalled what Job had to say about the God who, quote, alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. That's from Job 9.8. Or maybe he could hear running in, in his mind the words of Psalm 77, where it reads, When the water saw you, O God, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The waters poured out, or the clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. See, something clicked because Peter got it. He found that faith that he needed. Otherwise, how could he have ever had the courage to step out of that boat? Peter's instincts were correct. Jesus had a purpose for him, and no harm would come to him while Jesus was at hand. But just as we experience so often ourselves, instincts always get distracted by reality, doesn't it? So when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. This is verse 30. In a blink of an eye, he was in trouble because he took his eyes off of Jesus and took in the surging waves and the buffeting wind instead. The reading concludes with, quote, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus saves. The point is, if Jesus doesn't save, Peter would still be doing the dog paddle in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus saves more than just someone potentially drowning, doesn't he? And faced yet with 
again with the undeniable proof of his power and purpose, the disciples chose at this time to bow in humble recognition of the promised Messiah, the one sent by the Father to conquer sin and death and deliver those who trust in him from those two imposters. This is a sea change, if you will, from the reactions they had previously displayed when they wondered what sort of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him, as seen in Matthew 8. And in Mark's parallel account, it says that the twelve had been astounded by the feeding of the multitude and didn't understand it because their hearts were hardened. But now they've made a spiritual breakthrough. If there is anyone trustworthy, anyone who has proved himself without a doubt, it is Jesus. So, what does he want from you? Micah said it best. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? There are always many things clamoring for our attention. Dangers that threaten, diversions that distract and momentarily captivate us. All of them taking our eyes off of what is truly important in our lives. When things get rough for us, just like Peter, it is so easy for us to see those waves crashing, to hear the wind blowing, to feel the sting of the tempest-driven foam as it lashes against our cheeks. If we stop to think, we start to sink. But remember, in the midst of whatever troubles we might face, whatever struggles we are contending with, Jesus is there by our side, ready to see us through the gale and to lift us from the waves that threaten to engulf us. Make sure that you're all in. Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's all he asks. Look to him. Trust him. Walk with him. He is committed to you. He won't ever let you down. Amen. Thank you, Deacon Bob, for a great reminder.